0: Method and madness is a true crime podcast dealing with events of violence that may be disturbing to some. listener discretion is advised. Airline safety has evolved in many ways over the years and particularly since 9/11, keeping the bad guy from taking control of an airplane has been paramount. But what if the bad guy is already inside the cockpit? This is Method and Madness Episode 21, Eleven Minutes, German Wings Flight 9525. I'm your host, Don Gandhi. The body was dismembered. A ransom note was discovered. A hiker stumbled upon the nude body of a local... The police are looking into the brutal slaying of a young woman. There may be a clue in a released 911 call from... The victim said she was stopped for five years. ...held captive inside a storage container. It was a twisted mix of obsession and revenge. No weapon has been located. Shot while asleep in their beds. And revenge. Method. And madness. Airline crashes in general are rare, and when they do occur, data has shown that the cause is most likely to be weather-related, pilot error, mechanical defects, or air traffic controller error. There's been a significant improvement in airline safety through the history of flying. There was the creation of the flight recorder, the so-called black box, in 1954, providing information for what occurred in flight. Then there's safety features such as de-icing planes, upgrading airplane interiors to fire resistant materials, as well as improving how tasks are managed inside the cockpit to decrease the risk of human error. Aviation safety teams examine flight data, assess risks, and develop mitigation plans to decrease the risk of crashes. The Federal Aviation Administration, the FAA, reported that between 2008 and 2018, Commercial fatality risk in the U.S. dropped 83% due to these proactive measures. Methods like detecting when terrain is too close, alerting pilots if visibility is poor in the case of unexpected inclement weather. Before 9-11, issues with airline employee turnover and inadequate training led to security issues that most of us flyers were unaware of, essentially increasing risks to flights lack of ability or focus on detecting weapons during the screening process, people accessing secured areas by flashing fake identifications, and poor construction of cockpit doors led to security breaches and inevitably to 19 terrorists boarding flights on September 11th and taking over. After 2001, safety measures were carefully reassessed and changes like shoe removal, increased baggage screening, a ban on liquids over 3.4 ounces meant longer lines at security but peace of mind for travelers. And then, of course, there were the reinforced cockpit doors. But despite all the positive changes, one risk wasn't identified across all airlines globally. It was March 24, 2015, and what was left of the Airbus A320 was scattered in the mountains of the French Alps in southern France northwest of Nice. There was barely anything that resembled an airplane, just pieces of fuselage scattered, the largest piece the size of a small car. Luggage was strewn about as well as seats, shoes, and body parts. Smoke and flames filled the air along with the strong smell of jet fuel. What was the cause of the crash of German wings Flight 9525? Let's dive in. It was a Tuesday morning at El Prat Airport in Barcelona. At Terminal 2 of the German Wings gate, passengers were lining up to begin boarding their flight, headed to Dusseldorf, Germany. Of the 144 ticketed passengers from Spain, Germany, Australia, Belgium, the U.S., and other nations, 16 of them were 10th grade students, returning from a Spanish exchange program who had spent seven days in a village near Barcelona. There was Paul Andrew Bramley, a 28-year-old student returning from a vacation with friends, two Iranian reporters, opera singer Maria Radner, her husband, and their two-year-old son Felix, a newlywed couple who had just been married days earlier, and Maria Bandras from Manchester traveling home for a funeral, her seventh-month-old baby boy Julian in tow. The passengers filed into the jetway and one by one entered the plane, nodding politely and saying good morning to the waiting flight crew. Four crew members and two pilots were on duty that day. One of the first passengers to board was 50-year-old Martin Matthews, who took his seat up front close to the cockpit. As the 16 students on board settled into their seats, they began texting their friends saying they were on their way and couldn't wait to get home. They had souvenirs for friends and family and were excited to share the details of a program for which they had been specially selected to participate in as exchange students. Flight 9525 was preparing for takeoff after sitting on the runway for a bit longer than scheduled, but inside the cockpit, the captain was telling his co-pilot that he was confident they could make up the time. It was a clear day, weather was ideal for flying, and this flight was scheduled for just under two hours. The captain was 34-year-old Patrick Sondenheimer, a German with more than 6,700 hours flying experience. His co-pilot was 27-year-old Andreas Lubitz, a German with over 900 hours flying, who had just started working for German wings the year prior. And what nobody on board realized was that the co-pilot was keeping a secret that at recent sessions with his psychiatrist, he had been diagnosed with psychosomatic and anxiety disorders, as well as possible psychosis in addition to depression. Nobody he worked with was aware that he had been referred to a psychiatric hospital for treatment and that he was prescribed antidepressants and sleep aid medications, and that he was deemed not fit to fly that day. And although Germany's privacy laws allow for doctors to contact a patient's employer if they pose a danger to others, Lubitz's doctor did no such thing reportedly. And what 149 people aboard that flight also didn't know was that when Andreas Lubitz filled out his flight school-required documents just a few years earlier, that he had lied about a history of mental illness and being diagnosed with any mental disorders. He had checked off no on that box, and even after coming clean about his lies, he was still given a clean bill of health for flight school, rather than being prosecuted for the felony of falsifying an FAA record, an offense that can land you in jail. So the carry-on luggage was stowed, the safety spiel had been conducted by the flight crew, and it was time for takeoff. At 9 a.m. UTC time, the flight took off 26 minutes later than scheduled. The following is the chain of events that took place inside the cockpit that morning, according to the released report by the Bureau of Enquiry and Analysis for Civil Aviation Safety, the BEA. The following is the information retrieved from the plane's black box. All times are in UTC time. At 9.12 a.m., the plane was climbing, and the buzzer sounded inside the cockpit, indicating someone was requesting access. The door opened and closed, and a flight attendant was now inside the cockpit. The two pilots and the flight attendant spoke briefly about the flight they had all worked earlier that day, on their way into Barcelona. Three minutes later, the cockpit door opened and closed as the flight attendant left the cockpit. Captain Sondenheimer and co-pilot Lubitz then began discussions about their flight plan, deciding how they would manage the delay and making up for their late takeoff. The captain mentioned that once they reached cruising altitude, he would need to step out of the cockpit to use the restroom, to which Lubitz responded that he could go at any time. And it was sometime during these conversations that reportedly Lubitz went from courteous to responding in a curt manner. By 9.27, the plane had reached its desired altitude of 38,000 feet and the flight crew were in communication with the control center. The captain instructed the co-pilot to prepare the landing, to which he replied with, quote, hopefully and we'll see. A few minutes later, Captain Sondenheimer read a clearance back to the control center. This was the last communication from the flight crew to the control center. And then the captain got up out of his seat and told his co-pilot Lubitz that he was to take over and to continue the radio communications. Lubitz agreed, and the door opened and closed as Sodenheimer exited the cockpit, the door locking behind him as expected. It was now 9.30 a.m., and Lubitz was alone in the cockpit. See, at the time, there were no requirements around having two crew members in the cockpit at all times. Since 9/11, the United States and other countries required that if one pilot were leaving the cockpit, that another crew member, like a flight attendant, would need to take their place until they returned. With Captain Sonnenheimer out of the cockpit, the selected altitude, the one that was on the flight plan, was changed from 38,000 feet to 100 feet, which is the lowest altitude one can select. The plane started to descend while the speed began to increase. At 9.33, the original speed entered for the flight plan was overridden from 273 knots to 308 knots, roughly 354 miles per hour. The crew at air traffic control took notice of the change immediately. They saw that the plane was entering a descent, and they attempted communication with the German wing's flight crew, asking what altitude they were cleared for, there was no response from the cockpit air traffic control tried a few more times to contact the flight crew but got no responses at 9:34 a.m. the selected speed was again increased this time to 323 knots or 371 miles per hour moments later the buzzer was heard on the flight deck indicating that someone outside of the cockpit was requesting entry Captain Sondenheimer had returned to the cockpit door, where he entered the code on the keypad located on the wall in the passenger cabin. The code, when entered correctly, acts as a doorbell, alerting the crew inside the cockpit that someone is outside requesting to get in. The pilot or pilots can then look at their video monitors to see who is outside the cockpit. To grant access, the pilot would toggle a switch at their fingertips to unlock the door. You can also block access to the cockpit, say if you see that a flight attendant has been taken hostage and is being forced to open the door. To block access to the cockpit, the pilot inside could also toggle the switch to a lock position, which keeps the cockpit door locked and makes the keypad in the passenger cabin unusable for five minutes. In an emergency, like a pilot becomes ill or somehow incapacitated, the crew in the passenger cabin can access the cockpit by entering the emergency code on the digital panel. But if the pilot or pilots do not respond to the emergency call within 15 seconds, the door automatically unlocks for five seconds, which will allow a crew member to access the cockpit theoretically to assist the incapacitated pilot. Additionally, Cabin crew and flight crew can communicate through the locked cockpit door by using an intercom system. But on this morning, the captain wouldn't be able to get inside the cockpit. There's no way that he'd be able to get through the door. First of all, the door was manually set from inside of the cockpit to the overriding locked position, an option used by Lubitz that would override any keypad entry from outside the cockpit. Furthermore, there would be no way to break into the cockpit from the passenger cabin. Lubitz was utilizing a safety measure to keep terrorists out of the cockpit on his captain. According to the BEA report, the door that separated the cabin from the cockpit consisted of a composite sandwich-type structure made of prepreg sheets covering a honeycomb core. The outer prepreg sheets were designed to ensure bulletproofing. On the lower portion of the door, there is an escape hatch, but it could only be opened from inside the cockpit in case of an emergency. If the plane were to be under attack by hijackers, this reinforced door would prevent them from entry into the cockpit. They would be unable to use the plane as a weapon of mass destruction because this type of security keeps the pilots inside, safely undisturbed, and able to make a safe landing. But all that security, all the safety measures, they don't help if the bad guy is already flying the plane. Seven seconds after the captain requested entry into the cockpit, air traffic control again tried to contact the cockpit and got no answer. Nine seconds later, and then 14 seconds after that, More attempts at contact from the controller with no response. The altitude was now down to 25,100 feet. At 9.35, the selected speed was once again increased to 350 knots, or 402 miles per hour, where it remained for the rest of the flight. Between 9.35 and 9.39, the cockpit call signal was engaged four times, and knocking on the cockpit door could be heard six times. The sounds of muffled voices were recorded from outside the cockpit door the captain was verbally asking for and then demanding entry. Between 9.38 and 9.39, air traffic controllers from the French Air Defense System tried to contact the flight crew. They, too, received no response. For the next minute, loud blows could be heard as the captain attempted to break down the cockpit door, five attempts total, as the plane continued its rapid descent at a high speed. The captain could be heard shouting, for God's sake, open the damn door. At the same time, a flight crew from a nearby plane tried to contact the cockpit and they too got no response. At 9.40, a warning signaled and could be heard for the remainder of the flight, the sound of terrain, terrain, pull up, pull up. It didn't change anything about the flight speed or altitude, just served as a warning to the flight crew. A master caution and then master warning was triggered and remained active for the remaining flight. The final sounds recorded were of the crew and passengers' screams as they realized their fate. And finally, at 9.41 a.m., the cockpit voice recorder stopped recording as the plane collided with the terrain and disappeared from radar. The French Civil Aviation Safety Investigation Authority received word about the crash shortly after it occurred and reported to the site to begin an investigation and a possible rescue. At 11 a.m. local time, a member of the Mountain Rescue Squad, Jean-Sebastien Baud was lowered into the mountains from a helicopter, where he took in the aftermath of the crash and knew instantly there were no survivors. He saw seats, luggage, clothing, and body parts. Quite miraculously, within minutes, he had found the cockpit voice recorder, the black box, which was actually orange. He didn't touch anything but marked each area that contained human remains. A few hours later, forensic specialists were on the scene and the executives at Germanwings were contacting family members to deliver the horrifying news. The big question, of course, was what caused the crash. The discovery of the black box was key. Examining the data and recordings of the final words and thoughts of the flight crew, along with the air traffic control centers providing information about the loss of communication, would reveal crucial information. There's something quite unsettling about discovering the last words spoken before a crash, important in the discovery of the cause, but unsettling nonetheless. Transcripts of final moments before a crash have shown that final words can range from a sudden realization that something has gone catastrophically wrong, pilots exclaiming words like, quote, this can't be, or quote, what the hell is that, to final words being I love you, mom. And mostly, this is from a time decades ago when safety wasn't as advanced as it is today. So the data from the cockpit voice recorder for this German wing's flight was examined immediately, and news reports were already running within 24 hours saying that a pilot had deliberately crashed the plane. It was discovered pretty quickly that the captain had been locked out of the cockpit, so a thorough investigation would be conducted, leaving no doubt what if, some had theorized, the co-pilot was suffering from medical distress and was unable to open the cockpit door? German Wings, a subsidiary of Lufthansa, was at the time of the crash an airline with a great reputation. Chief Executive Karsten Spahr released a statement the day after the crash expressing sympathy for the victims and offering condolences to their families. He assured the public that the cause of the crash would be thoroughly investigated and insisted that, in spite of news reports, Lubitz had deliberately crashed a plane, that the co pilot was 100% fit to fly. During an interview with CNN a few days later, Spore said that there was no explanation for how this could have happened at the hands of a pilot that was trained through Lufthansa, and he expressed pride in the high standards the company has for selecting and training pilots. So let's get into the investigation and the findings. The data recorded from the earlier flight to Barcelona, the one that the flight crew had taken before the ill-fated Flight 9525, indicated that Lubitz had waited until Sondenheimer was out of the cockpit before quickly switching the automatic pilot to 100 feet. He switched it back in a move that investigators called a dress rehearsal for the actual event. On flight 9525, Lubitz again waited for Captain Sonnenheimer to get up to go to the bathroom. In fact, he reminded him several times to go. Once alone in the cockpit, Lubitz locked the cockpit door, a setting that would override any code entered from personnel outside of the cockpit. Imagine a hijacker outside the cockpit threatening a crew member to unlock the door. This type of setting Inside the cockpit is designed to keep everyone out at all costs. Lubitz then changed the altitude and speed, and for all intents and purposes, sat back and waited. Throughout the remainder of the flight, he made no noises, never spoke, but his calm breathing could be heard on the recorder, and there was no indication that he was suffering from any physical ailments. Any theories that perhaps Lubitz had suffered a heart attack or had fainted and couldn't open the door were ruled out based on the activities that took place inside the cockpit. When Captain Sondenheimer returned from the restroom, he was seen on closed-circuit television attempting to enter his access code into the cockpit. He knocked on the door and called out, It's me. Lubitz would have been able to see the captain on a screen in the cockpit transmitting the images from the CCTV, but he didn't react. By the time the plane had dipped down to 25,000 feet, the captain began to yell, for the love of God, open the door. Passengers were seen on the video getting up and moving about the cabin, panicked. One minute before the plane crashed, Captain Sonnenheimer had a flight attendant bring him a crowbar or an axe, depending on what report you read, from a hiding spot in the back of the plane. He went at the door with the crowbar, trying to get through, desperately trying to pry it open in what was later called an act of heroism a sight and sound that must have been truly terrifying for nearby passengers. Inside the cockpit, Lubitz placed an oxygen mask over his mouth and continued to breathe calmly. This was when the alarm began to sound. Terrain. Pull up. The right wing of the Airbus clipped the mountainside and screams in the cabin were picked up on the recording before the plane crashed into the mountains at 403 miles per hour. It seemed from the captured recording that most passengers were possibly unaware of how grim things had gotten until those final seconds. Looking at the evidence, nothing would be ruled out, but of course Lubitz became the focus of the investigation. French authorities performed toxicology examinations on Lubitz's remains, which detected the presence of two antidepressant medications and of a sleeping aid medication. There was no trace of alcohol or recreational drugs. A search of Lubitz's home was conducted, and an analysis was done on his personal computer and iPad, which showed that just weeks before the doomed flight, Lubitz had searched for ways to die by suicide, quote, drinking gasoline and which poison kills without pain, for example. He seemed to have made up his mind five days before the flight, where he searched for, quote, locking mechanism on an Airbus A320 cockpit door. Just days before the flight, Lubitz wrote on a piece of paper, quote, Decision Sunday, with a list of options. Find the inner will to work and live, deal with stress and sleeplessness, and finally, let myself go. The note was found in Lubitz's trash. Throughout the investigation, fingers were pointed at Lubitz's doctors for not alerting the airline that he was in no shape to fly, at the airline for ignoring the documentation in Lubitz's files, for allowing him to fly when he had falsified records. Lubitz's medical history, going back to 2008 when he was accepted into Flight Academy, showed he was under the care of psychiatrists, one that diagnosed him with deep depressive episodes and thoughts of suicide. Between 2008 and 2009, his Class 1 medical certificate was not revalidated by Luthansa. He was treated with medications and within six months showed significant improvement, though he continued to be treated by his psychiatrist. By summer of 2009, he received a new medical certificate with an amendment added, which stated that if Lubitz underwent any additional therapy or meds, he'd essentially be grounded. He remained stable for a few years, and by the end of 2014, he claimed he was losing his vision. Ophthalmologists examined him and found nothing physically wrong. The symptoms were said to be psychosomatic, accompanying his returning major depressive episode. His general practitioner diagnosed him with emergent psychosis and referred him to a psychiatric facility. He didn't go. He did, however, return to a psychiatrist's care and began therapy and was put on the medications for depression and anxiety. There was no evidence that Lubitz's doctors notified the airline. Flight instructors and other pilots were interviewed about their time working with Lubitz, and none noted any concerns about his demeanor, his behavior or anything else that would indicate he was unfit to fly the results of the investigation into the crash of flight 9525 was released in a final report by the bea which detailed everything from the history of the airplane to its impact and damage after the crash the personnel information of the captain and co-pilot the cockpit door locks and recording information as well as the medical certification process for flights in germany the uk france canada and the us In the report, it was noted that Lubitz did not have any additional insurance that would provide him an income should he be declared unfit to fly for a period of time, and that having a waiver attached to the medical certificate that was required, well, that was preventing him from acquiring additional insurance that would cover him financially. The report stated, quote, The following factors may have contributed to the failure of this principle the co-pilot's probable fear of losing his right to fly as a professional pilot if he had reported his decrease in medical fitness. The potential financial consequences generated by the lack of specific insurance covering the risks of loss of income in case of unfitness to fly. The lack of clear guidelines in German regulations on when a threat to public safety outweighs the requirement of medical confidentiality. The BEA also recommended 11 safety recommendations to the World Health Organization and others related to the following medical evaluation of pilots with mental health issues, routine analysis of in-flight incapacitation, mitigation of the consequences of loss of license, antidepressant medication, and flying status, and a balance between medical confidentiality and public safety. What the report didn't do was place any of the accountability on the airline, particularly the flight school, that allowed Lubitz to fly despite the falsifying of the FAA record. The final analysis was that Lubitz was the sole responsible party and that he had hid his medical diagnoses. Those who knew him were apparently shocked by his actions. It wasn't something that they would have thought he was capable of based on his personality. His family members have disputed the findings in the report, stating that the investigation was not thorough enough. And they've essentially played devil's advocate with such questions like, how do we really know it was Captain Sondenheimer outside of the cockpit and not Lubitz? How do we know it wasn't Lubitz's girlfriend that conducted the searches for suicide and cockpit door locks on the iPad? In July 2021, an aeromedical tool was unveiled as part of the recommendations in the BEA report. Basically, the European Aviation Safety Agency has made it mandatory that medical certificates allow traceability in order to ensure that medical fitness can be detected and mitigate the risk of another suicide mass murder. A few months after the crash, there was a ceremony held at a village near the crash site where tons of human remains that couldn't be identified through DNA were buried. Some family members of the victims refused to attend the mass burial, with the father of victim Maria Radner saying, quote, There were 149 victims and one killer. They should not be mixed together. Lufthansa gave the families of each of the victims 25,000 euros, the equivalent of just under $30,000. Reportedly, the sum of money was one thirty-sixth of CEO Karsten Spohr's annual salary of 2.74 million euros. The amount of money sparked outrage for the victims' families who decided to fight back. They obtained legal representation, and Lufthansa finally relented and provided each family an additional 10,000 euros. I'm certainly not alone in posing the following question. The question that anyone who had followed this case at the time asked, why commit mass murder when your desire is suicide? A lot of discussion has been had around mass shootings and suicide. The enraged individual that goes on a shooting spree and then turns the gun on themselves. What's difficult to wrap your head around in today's case, that this was not an individual that unleashed a violent fury on his victims taking out his aggressions, but quite literally sat back and waited for everyone to die a horrible death at his hands. Surely, Andreas Lubitz could have found a way to die by suicide that didn't include murdering 149 people. After giving this a lot of thought and reading the entire BEA report, I tried running through the possibilities that in Lubitz's mind meant that the best option would be taking innocent people down with you. So the evidence shows that Lubitz was depressed and had thoughts of suicide. Nothing indicated an inclination or desire to murder, however. But one thing in the BEA report that stuck out to me was the part where Lubitz was unable to obtain additional insurance that would cover him financially if he were grounded for a period of time due to mental illness. That being said, is it possible that Lubitz considered his options but ultimately decided that crashing a commercial flight with 149 innocent people on board would be the best way to stick it to the man? Now, I don't know. This is pure speculation as nobody can really know what was going through his mind in the days leading up to the crash and when he locked himself in the cockpit and deliberately changed the altitude and speed of the plane. But what we do know for a fact is that Lubitz was well aware of how many people were seated behind him. It's possible he even saw that there were young children boarding. Was he so focused on his objective that he became apathetic? I'm not so sure. Lubitz's ex-girlfriend told investigators that her former boyfriend had suffered from nightmares and would wake up screaming, We're going down. He had also reportedly told her, quote, one day I'm going to do something that will change the whole system and everyone will know my name and remember it. I never knew what he meant by that, but now it makes sense, she was quoted as saying. Now, if this is true, what would change the whole system? How would the whole system be changed? Does this give an indication into what Lubitz thought of the way mental illness was handled by his employers? Was deliberately crashing a plane really the best way to get that change? And the part about everyone will know my name. Nothing in Lubitz's medical history showed narcissistic traits or any outright feelings of inadequacy. Although, again, nobody truly knows what was going on inside his mind. I truly wish that someone had. After the crash of Germanwings Flight 9525, the European Aviation Safety Agency implemented the -the two-person-in-the-cockpit rule... But by 2016, they had already relaxed the rule, allowing individual airlines to decide for themselves if they wanted to enforce it. In 2017, it was announced that the rule would be dropped within German airlines, including Eurowings, which had merged with Germanwings. The reasoning was that there was little benefit to the rule, and it actually increased the frequency of the cockpit door opening and allowed more employees access. And finally, it was determined that the risk of another deliberate crash by a pilot was lower than that of a terrorist attack. To honor the 149 victims of the Germanwings Flight 9525, several memorial sites have been set up for family members to visit. A memorial plaque was placed at the front of the terminal at Barcelona's airport, as well as one at the airport in Dusseldorf, their destination. Thank you for listening to Method and Madness. This is an independent podcast, so if you like it, go ahead and leave a five-star review. It helps. You can find me on Twitter at MethodPod and on Instagram at MethodAndMadnessPod. If you have suggestions for future episodes or you just want to say hi, please email me at MethodAndMadnessPod at gmail.com. Method and Madness is a true crime podcast dealing with dark and disturbing subject matter. For crisis support, text hello to 741-741.